Welcome to the Terramod Space Podcast. This is Aravin. Today I'm speaking with Thomas Olmsten, Deputy Spacecraft Operations Manager for the Sentinel-1 mission at the European Space Agency. Thomas has over 15 years of experience in spacecraft operations, from being part of the operations team for the Mars Express mission to then becoming the spacecraft operations engineer for Earth Care and Sentinel-1 missions. I wanted to have Thomas on the podcast because I had been fascinated with the role of spacecraft operations for a while, and also because we don't really hear much about the profession within the space industry. I thought Thomas had an interesting profile because he worked in operations for both missions beyond Earth and as well as missions observing the Earth. In this episode, we discuss the role of a spacecraft operations engineer, his experience flying a spacecraft in Mars orbit, the differences with operating Earth observation missions and exploration missions, the Sentinel-1B incident, the growth of the space sustainability market, and more. And now I bring you Thomas Ormston. Hi Thomas, thanks for being on the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Brilliant. Let's get started. The first question that I usually start with is to ask guests to describe their story. Um, so I'm going to ask the same to you. What's your story and how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, so um, my story is probably a bit of a simple one compared to some people. I, um, I'm from the UK originally and was always a bit of a space fan. Um, originally into astronomy and then I saw the space station go over one night and was like, oof. I can uh, I can fly things that are, that people have made that are up there. So uh, I kind of went down that route. I, I did physics and space engineering at, at Birmingham Uni in the UK. Um, but then after that, I came to ESA. So I joined ESA in 2005 on the Young Graduate Trainee Program, actually flying the Mars Express mission. So uh, that was at ESOC, where I work now. We're in Darmstadt in Germany. That's the European Space Operations Centre. And we're mission control for Europe. We fly all of ESA's missions um, right here in Darmstadt. And I carried on for another eight or nine years on Mars Express. Um, also then moving to Telespazio, a contractor for a bit, which is a fairly typical route, I think, for careers in ESA. Uh, but then in 2012, I got hired as ESA staff and moved to Earth Observation, which was fantastic and uh, a really nice part of the European Space Agency to work in, especially, uh, okay, flying around Mars was great fun. Um, definitely uh, sounds good if you say it to someone in a bar, like, uh, you know, why, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I fly a spacecraft around Mars. It sounds good. But uh, the follow-up question of why do you do it is a lot easier to answer with Earth observation. So uh, I was happy to move down there. I was originally working on Earth Care for uh, several years, which is a mission we've got in preparation. And now uh, for the last two, two and a half years, uh, I've been the Deputy Spacecraft Operations Manager for the Sentinel-1 mission, uh, which is one of the Copernicus missions from the European Commission that they do in partnership with ESA. And I've been looking after the operations of that spacecraft since then and really enjoy it. Brilliant. Well, that's um, that's an exciting story. You, I think you've gotten you know people interested, you know, you both the exploration folks and the Earth observation folks. Not a lot of people can say that, right? I've worked on both. EO and exploration missions that's you know that's a brilliant story um i want to start with you know basic introductions about what is ESA operations uh, and for especially for those who don't know um is that a part of ESA that's responsible for flying all the missions just to give an intro into ESA operations Exactly. So, so ESA is made up of, as you can imagine, lots of different uh, different parts that have different responsibilities. And our directorate, it's called, is is the operations directorate with our base here in in Darmstadt. And yes, our job is 
operating ESA's missions for one thing, so uh, doing the the flight operations um, when they're in orbit, taking care of them from birth till death, basically, but also preparing, as I said, with Earthcare, preparing missions in preparation, but also in terms of what ESA operations does, we deal with a lot of other stuff that goes around operating spacecraft, some for the stuff we have to do and some as a broader role for developing and innovating in operations for, for Europe as a whole, which you'd expect of a space agency. So working on developing ground systems, both hardware and software for how, how to operate spacecraft, uh, and increasingly now looking at uh, space safety, uh, which is a big, big area that we're looking into now, which is the sort of the three main components are our space weather, um, near Earth objects and space debris. Uh, of course, in Earth observation operations, space debris is the one that, that gives us the, the most trouble on a day to day basis. Um, but they're all important for, for protecting our space assets. And so that's one of the other big growth areas that we've got at the moment in ESA operations. Yeah, I think it's um, very interesting. And I guess, again, you've covered a lot of um, areas here and we'll talk about a lot of this uh, over the conversation. Uh, I wanted to ask you, so what does a spacecraft operations person do? Um, what does your typical day look like? Do you just basically sit around and, you know, fly spacecraft? It's It almost seems like it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's kind of like a game, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a, kind of a boring computer game. No, it's a very serious game. Yeah, it's 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 like a real version of Kerbal Space Program most of the time. Uh, yeah, no, um, operations. Some people, are, yeah, I think I would describe it as well. It's it's long periods of boredom followed by short periods of extreme stress. Um, it's actually not that bad, and, um, and and we even it out. But day to day, our job is to monitor the spacecraft. So if we're in a flying mission, and I guess we'll talk um, maybe later about what it's like preparing a mission to launch. But in routine operations like for Sentinel-1, our job is, first of all, to, to monitor the spacecraft, uh, to detect whether there's any problems that need to be dealt with, need to be looked at, need to be corrected. Uh, we also then look at mission planning, which is another major activity. So making sure it does what it's there to do, uh, making sure we uplink uh, new commands and things every day to keep it fed with commands to, to do its job. Uh, we also look longer term at, at what could go wrong and try and look at ways we could prevent that. Uh, that's that's also part of our job as well. We're, we're paid to be paranoid and look at the worst case scenarios and prepare for them because if we prepare for everything ahead of time, then it's a lot more manageable if it were to ever happen. Of course, we also have to deal with the same stuff that everybody deals with at their computers and at home and things like that. We have to deal with obsolescence of our hardware and software. I mean, our, our missions fly for many, many years. Um, you think it's annoying to do a Windows update at home. Imagine trying to do that on a mission control system or on the spacecraft itself. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine really, because again, there's a lot of things that you do on a daily basis. Um, now that I'm thinking from just operating a spacecraft, which, you know, can be routine, but then can have its own surprises, uh, to, you know, widening debris uh, or performing a collision avoidance maneuver. So yeah, there's quite a lot of things. And then you add the complexity of, you know, mission planning and then how the mission's going on, right? Because I'm guessing your input is going to be very important, especially in exploration missions where, you know, their future is dependent on, you know, what you guys tell, uh, you know, the, the agency about what the missions can do and, you know, what can happen, right? Yes. 
Yeah, no, very much. We we have a critical role to play in, in yes, assessing the health of the spacecraft because the decision, I mean, for any mission, really, the decision on continuation, if if you're extending a mission, comes down partly, of course, to money. Um, but the other part of money is what, you're, what benefit you're getting for that. So you need to look at what can it do. And that comes obviously from the science side as to say, what science can we still do with an, an aging spacecraft? Um, but also how healthy is it and how much risk do we have if we continue operating that mission? Uh, so yes, we we definitely have a role to play there in monitoring and and maintaining the health of the spacecraft and things like that, and assessing realistically what it can do. That becomes very important. You say with space debris, it becomes very important for sure, uh, as well with Earth observation spacecraft, because now you have the the difficult decision to make: do you try and get another couple of years out of it, but what risk do you have that you might lose the mission and not be able to deorbit it or safely dispose of it at the end of the mission? So it's always a a challenging trade-off that you've got to play with. Cool. So um, I'm, I was also wondering how important it is for someone in the operations team to know about the big picture and the and the overall impact of the mission. So you know, for example, uh, we'll get into your you know your role in Sentinel One and you know other missions you've worked on. But I'm curious, do you need to know what Sentinel One does in terms of the impact? You know, the Sentinel One image being used for flood mapping in I don't know some part of the world. Do, you know, does that matter? Because, you know, that doesn't affect your day-to-day job as much, right? No, I mean, theoretically, it doesn't matter. And uh, and, and vice versa as well. I mean, we, we often joke that if we do our jobs well, no one knows we're there. But uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, but although it doesn't technically matter, it is still of, of huge importance, I think, to all of us uh, that fly it. Because on the one hand, it's the motivation that keeps us doing it. I mean, I, I talk about uh, saying, well, what do you do in a bar or something like that? But we do treat our missions with a huge amount of pride. And uh, when I read or, or see the science results from Sentinel-1 and, and the missions I've worked on and think that myself and the teams here have been been a part of that, it's hugely motivating. It keeps you working the long nights or the 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 early mornings that, that happen when you fly spacecraft and things like that. But then on the flip side, you also, it's very important for the technical side of things as well, just to be able to think about the requests because we get requests from the science teams and to understand for them what those requests mean or what impact our work has on on their science data is important. For example, we, we fly what we call an orbital tube with Sentinel-1. We, we fly through a, an invisible tube in space, um, which we need to do to get the interferometric measurements so that one, one observation lines up with another observation. And sometimes because of space weather, for example, or a collision avoidance, we go outside of that tube. And we could just say, well, we went outside of it, but it is interesting to know from the science side what Im- impacts that has. It's like, okay, well, then those images or that, that those data takes potentially can't be used for interferometry or aren't as easy to use for interferometry. interferometry. So um, it is interesting to learn what the science side is doing because it puts context to what we're doing from a purely engineering point of view. Very interesting. Yeah, the the, the interferometry example that you gave is... It's pretty spot on in terms of, you know, understanding the role of uh, spacecraft operations. All right, cool. I was going to ask you then about Mars uh, Express, the mission that you worked on. Um, I'll come to, you know, the difference between, you know, what's different between working in a mission that's, you know, out there in Mars versus uh, an observation mission in a bit. But 
talk talk about what um what was this mission about first and then your kind of experience doing that for did you say seven years um you would have a lot of stuff uh eight i think eight years i was on mars express yeah yeah so, so yeah th there should be a lot of stories oh yeah there's there's plenty of stories definitely when mars express is uh is involved it's a fantastic mission it's uh, europe's first mars mission uh, was actually a bit uh, opportunistic. Um, there was a Russian Mars mission called Mars 96 that failed, um, and they were looking. There was some European involvement in that, and they were looking with what to do with the instruments. Um, and in parallel, we'd been developing Rosetta from Europe to fly to the comet, uh, and sort of everything came together in the spare parts bin. I think at, at around that that time, and they called it Mars Express because we built it quickly, basically using spare parts and heritage from. Mars 96 and from Rosetta to cobble together a mission that could go to Mars. Uh, so we launched in 2003 uh, with a British lander on board as well called Beagle 2, which um, unfortunately failed uh, when we got to Mars. Uh, but Mars Express, the orbiter, um, has been flying successfully uh, since we arrived on, on Christmas Day uh, 2003. Uh, we're now approaching the, the 20th birthday of Mars Express next year. Um, which is fantastic for a mission that was designed to only last two years. Uh, and it's done a huge amount for Mars exploration, sort of a, a silent workhorse. Just It's got a really nice suite of instruments. It's got optical instruments, it's got spectrometers, it's got a radar for the looking subsurface and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting spacecraft. It's also got a relay system. So we've talked with, I think, pretty much all the landers. And um, it's one of the few missions to have talked to landers from, from every nation. So uh, we've talked to both the Chinese lander and to the uh, American landers, which is quite unique for the mission. So uh, it's been fantastic and it's certainly had its fair share of issues through the years. Um, a spacecraft that old in an environment like that means that uh, we've had to make do and improvise a lot of times. And actually what's been interesting, I was talking to a colleague today, is that most of the problems we found on Mars Express, the solutions actually made the mission better, which is something that I think we can be quite proud of. We're, when we ended up working on the solutions, they actually usually improved the capability of the spacecraft rather than, than damaging it, which is something really, really nice to see. And of course, over that time, we've also seen fantastic things and made fantastic discoveries about Mars. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just a, a really nice mission. I hope it carries on living forever. At the moment, it shows no signs of slowing down, which is good for, for such an old timer at Mars. No, 100%. Um, because you worked on this mission, I'm curious, so how different it is? Because, you know, in terms of even sending a command, you know, you can't get quick response or you don't even know if the command worked for eight minutes, correct? Uh, it depends, yeah. So at the closest, you got about uh, eight minutes round trip light time to Mars. At the furthest, you've got um, over 40 minutes of round trip light time, and that varies every th through a two-year cycle. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big impact on the operations, having this one-way light time to deal with. Uh, certainly, yes, when you see something, you know that it happened four minutes or, well, between four and 20 minutes ago, um, and you're not going to be able to respond for another four to 20 minutes, depending on where we are. Um, that's a big impact. And yes, when you do something, you you send it and, and you go for a cup of tea and you come back and you see whether it worked or not. Uh, that said, from an operations point of view, in many ways, it's not that different to Earth observation. Because although Earth observation, yes, you send your commands, they 
you see straight away what's happened. Um, that you can only do when you've got contact with your spacecraft. And different to the movies, we actually fairly rarely have contact with our spacecraft. I mean, with the Sentinel-1, we, we take three passes per day. Um, but even if we were to take every pass, every orbit, usually you only have ground stations for, for Earth observation satellites near the poles, somewhere like Svalbard or Karuna, uh, which means you only see the spacecraft for around 10 minutes every 90 minute orbit. So although we can talk to it instantly, the chances are if something happens, it's going to happen in the 80 minutes or if you're in a 90 minute orbit, the 80 minutes of the orbit that you're not looking at the spacecraft. So just like at Mars, the spacecraft has to take care of itself there. And just like at Mars, if you send something in that 10 minute pass, it might take time to take effect and things like that. You might not be able to do everything within 10 minutes. And in that sense, you've you've got to operate it somewhat remotely. So the challenges are both completely different and completely the same. Yeah, it's fascinating, really. Did you kind of develop, might be a weird question, but did you kind of develop a, I don't know, a relationship with the with a spacecraft it's almost like kind of like your baby yeah you absolutely do I, I don't i don't think there's an operator out there that doesn't uh, sort of anthropomorphize the spacecraft yeah you you get a feeling i mean mars express the famous example was um we always uh, you see it on isa twitter without d fail every birthday of mars express every launch day we send a happy birthday tweet the one year we forgot to do that the spacecraft went to safe mode i, I think it got annoyed that we forgot its birthday but oh, uh, wow. <laughs> but yeah they you, you definitely get a feeling for the spacecraft they have moods and things like that and uh, yeah in a in an environment like that where you we say we're in control but our control is only limited space is still a very challenging environment uh, it, it definitely helps to to put a face on them and things like that Fair enough. And then why did you kind of move over to Earth observation or, you know, how, how first, how hard was it to kind of say goodbye in a way to, to Mars Ex Express and why um, Earth observation? Was that your choice? Uh, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it was a little bit of opportunity and a little bit of choice. So, so the opportunity opened up in Earth observation and um, I originally thought well you know what no i'm I, I do mars i do exploration i do planetary and that's very exciting and everything else and and why would i go to earth observation um but then when i really thought about it i thought first of all it is a it's a different challenge and from an operations point of view it's just as exciting flying an earth observation mission as a mars mission um so but but very different which is nice so it would be a a new challenge which was interesting and then on top of that yeah, the motivation, especially with climate change and other things becoming more present. Flying around Mars is fantastic and, and cool and everything else, but you do definitely, with Earth observation, really see that what you're doing has a direct impact on what's happening to people's lives, really, here on Earth, uh, which is is a very nice feeling. So when the op when the opportunity came up and I really thought about it, I'm like, you know what, yeah, this is really something I'd, I'd like to go for. So... In the end, yeah, it was bittersweet. It was sad to leave Mars and exploration. But uh, the good thing is, I mean, in our center, the door's always open. So I could I could go back. But right now, I am I really love flying Earth observation missions. So I'm, I'm not looking to move anytime soon. <laughs> 100%. Uh, and before we get into Earth observation, I, I wanted to ask, so were you part of, um, you know, the Rosetta mission or were you involved in kind of the experience? Because it must have been incredible, isn't it? Maybe give a quick overview of Rosetta for people. Who yeah, are. so so Rosetta was our, our comet chaser and one of the most 
ambitious missions we've ever done um, to, to fly to a comet. Now, humanity has been to a comet with an ESA mission, Giotto, before, but also American missions like Stardust. Uh, but no one's ever matched orbit with a comet and then stayed with it. And that it was was groundbreaking and revolutionary and comets are the building blocks of our solar system so uh, they have a lot to teach us about how our solar system was formed uh, so to do that to get there was fantastic and then to land on the comet as well which uh, was again something no one's ever done before was was absolutely fantastic so i was involved sort of on the sidelines especially as we shared a lot of uh, hardware um, between Mars Express and Rosetta and I was there at the same time so uh, there was a lot of joint work um, they obviously had a lot to do and so we lent a hand when we could given that we we knew their spacecraft pretty well as well because we shared a lot of the same hardware uh, but yeah being around in that time was crazy it, it, it was so many firsts for us I mean just catching up to the comet was hard enough but then navigating around a body we'd never seen before um, using optical navigation, which hadn't been done before. And uh, then on top of that, the gravity is weird. It's very weak and very lumpy. So it's not like a nice neat orbit around a planet. Uh, and then you've got the particle environment as the comet wakes up and things like that. So uh, it was a really exciting time to see that and to see the global reaction as well. I mean, people really woke up and, and saw, I think, from all over the world uh, were amazed by what we were doing. And um, I'm looking forward to going back to a, oh well I'm looking forward to ESA going back to a comet we're preparing a mission at the moment uh, which is going back to a comet hopefully uh, cool so let's um, move to your second part of your career which has all been about earth observation and you started with um, Earthcare and yes. this is yeah Earthcare um, again you can give context and it's a mission that I'm super excited about launching next year if I'm not mistaken and it's it's going to be an incredible mission and it has four instruments just blows my mind um and it's going to be it's going to be a great mission so talk about um yeah give an overview of the mission um and then you know i want to get into how is it from an operations point of view working on a mission that's not going to launch for yeah. 10 years <laughs> so um i mean in terms of what the mission is uh yeah earthcare is one of our explorer programs so we've got the two big families of earth observation missions at esa we've got the the explorers which are, are esa missions they tend to be smaller and they usually try and answer a specific science question each of them or a technology question and then we've got the sentinels the copernicus program which we do with the european commission uh, which is more operational monitoring um, of the planet. So for the Explorer missions, Earthcare is one of those Explorer missions. It's one of the biggest Explorer missions that we've launched so far. Uh, and yes, indeed, it's the Earth Cloud Aerosol and Radiation Explorer. This, the CARE is, a, is an acronym because we love to do that in space. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what it's looking at is the Earth's radiative balance, which uh, sounds a bit obtuse but we're looking at the greenhouse effect basically and that's the the key aim of the mission is to try and better understand how radiation so infrared radiation thermal radiation from the sun interacts with clouds and aerosols and gets trapped in our in our atmosphere what we colloquially yeah, call the greenhouse effect um, because although we know the greenhouse effect is a thing and it's a big driver of, of weather systems and and climate here on earth uh, exactly the mechanics of how it works are not as well understood for example when thermal radiation infrared comes in from the sun it bounces off these clouds and aerosols and gets trapped but in doing that it changes those clouds and aerosols and then they bounce off radiation in a slightly different way and these dynamics are 
relatively poorly understood. So the idea with EarthCare is to build up lots of snapshots by just constantly scanning the whole planet uh, as we orbit around. Build lots of yeah, snapshots. Four yeah. instruments. Four yeah, instruments, uh... yeah. And these uh, these snapshots will be a combination. That's the, the power of the mission is all four working together. On their own, the yeah. instruments are nice, but together that's the real the real key. So we know how much infrared is coming in from the sun. Uh, then we've got a broadband radiometer on board that tells us how much infrared escapes uh, from the Earth. So by subtracting the two, obviously, you can work out how much has got trapped. Uh, then we've got a multispectral imager that allows us to get a visual view of the scene that we're looking at. And then the two big active instruments, which is ATLID, which is our LIDAR, an atmospheric LIDAR, uh, which is real bleeding edge technology currently being tried out on Aeolus to measure wind speeds on our Aeolus mission. Um, but this will bounce a UV laser um, down to the planet and back again. And then by seeing how that laser is scattered, we can infer where the aerosols are in the column beneath the spacecraft. And then we've got a contribution from the Japanese space agency, JAXA, who are our partners on this. They're contributing the cloud profiling radar, CPR, uh, which is a microwave radar. Um, that's on the top of the spacecraft and that measures all of the clouds and water droplets and their motion. It's a Doppler radar um, beneath the spacecraft. And these are all co-located or looking at the same spot on the Earth. So you get this scene where you have all of the information you need to start understanding the radiative balance. You've got where the clouds are, you've got where the aerosols are, you've got how much infrared is, is coming out and escaping, and you've got an image to tie it all together. And then by building up a library of thousands of these scenes, maybe millions over the course of the mission and different parts of the world in different weather conditions, different aerosol and cloud balances, uh, hopefully we'll be able to then start looking at using that to improve our modeling of of the greenhouse effect and particularly on how it affects weather, which is um, critical for so many applications. I mean, more so than just, is it going to be nice? So, yeah, it's going to be an incredible mission. I mean, when I got to know about the mission and I got to know that it has four instruments, you know, these four can just be a mission on its own. Yes. You know, if you're sending a LIDAR up or if you're sending a cloud radar up, can be a mission on its own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Locate four of them. Yeah, from a remote sensing point of view, yeah. For uh, listeners who are not remote sensing kind of nerds, they might be like, yeah, you know. So it's another Earth observation mission, but then, yeah, you can kind of geek out a little. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, no. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. But, um, of course, it's not been launched yet. Uh, yeah, we're hoping to launch uh, next year. Of course, they're still looking at options given that the launcher was due to be a Soyuz launcher which is now since the war started in Ukraine we've we've discontinued working with Soyuz launchers in French Guiana so they're looking at launch options at the moment but uh, there's a lot of will to get it launched because uh, okay when I joined the project in 2012 we were due to launch shortly afterwards um, and it's now been several years since then um, with numerous delays for for various reasons uh, unfortunately that can be the curse of some of the explorer missions because we're we're trying real cutting edge or even bleeding edge technology uh, for the instruments um, delays are not uncommon as we debug uh, the technologies that that we're working on which is frustrating from my point of view wanting to see it launched and wanting to fly it but uh, at the same time it brings its own benefits i mean everything we do in those delays learning about how to improve the instruments, how to make them work, not only delivers a successful mission, but also teaches us something about how to use these technologies in the future. Uh, but our role um, 
at ESOC at least in, in operations during that phase. Um, part of our role is to build up our own systems and that's probably the, the biggest part of our role. So of course you don't sit down and have a an entire system on ground able to fly a mission or a team able to fly a mission. Uh, you don't just sit down when the rocket launches and you're ready to go. Uh, it takes some years usually of development of ground systems, control systems, simulators so that we can simulate how the spacecraft will behave, uh, the team training them up and getting them used to the spacecraft. That all takes time so we have to build all of that up. Uh, you've also got to build up the wider ground system. I mean, I, I often think just about what we do here in Darmstadt, but of course, the science data goes somewhere. We don't do anything with it here, but we have to make sure it's downlinked. So on the Ezrin side, which is another ESA site in, in Italy uh, that deal with our Earth observation missions, they have to sort out how to process the data, how to take raw packets and build processes that from day one, or at least from the end of commissioning, will be able to deliver products to users at the, I mean, Earthgate goes up to level four products, which is quite unusual for most ESA missions, but uh, they need to develop all of that. So there's a lot of work that goes on. We also work closely with the satellite manufacturer because, of course, what makes sense when you're building a satellite on the ground might not make sense in orbit. So we have to feed back a lot of our experience from flying things in orbit and review the designs and everything else to make sure that that we can fly them uh, when, when it gets into space. Because yes, constraints like what happens if we have a collision avoidance or um, what happens if we don't see the spacecraft for a day or something because one of our ground stations has failed. We need to be robust against all of those things. And so we try and uh, inject that into the design. All right, that's uh, you know, a lot of work I wouldn't have thought, uh, or you know, it seems obvious now that I hear, but then you know, it, it is, I think, needs to be spelled out in terms of these are, this is why operations need to be involved from, let's say, day one uh, of designing and manufacturing the spacecraft. All right, makes sense. Um, I want to move on to our favorite mission, or probably your favorite mission, I guess, uh, Sentinel-1. A lot of people know about Sentinel-1, but then maybe you can give a quick word about what the mission is. And then I, I want to move on to doing, you know, what Sentinel-1 is about and what's different about operating Sentinel-1. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, Sentinel-1... Yes. Oh, well, how, how to introduce it? It's it's one of the uh, the flagship missions. I'm I'm saying that with a little bit of ego on my side of the of the European Commission's Copernicus program. So uh, the Copernicus program. Um, originally called Global Monitoring for Environment and Security, which doesn't sound as nice, but is a bit more descriptive about what it what it's there for. I mean, ultimately, what we're doing is providing some of the best free open Earth observation data that is available worldwide, full stop, free and open for anyone to use for anything. So uh, the Copernicus project on its own is something I'm very proud of and I'm very happy exists and, and comes from Europe. And yes, uh, we operate Sentinel-1, which is part of what they call the space component of Copernicus, which are the Sentinels. Uh, the Sentinel missions each look at the world in a, a different way. They, they each use a different technique of Earth observation. Sentinel-1 was the first, uh, and we use synthetic aperture radar. Um, so we have a C-band synthetic aperture radar, uh, which we use to look down on the planet and take SAR data in various modes. We have a few different operating modes. Um, normally we operate in, in what's called interferometric wide swath over um, over land areas and then we have a, a wave mode that we can use over, over sea areas. Um, 
and yeah that's that's used to gather data on our planet normally when both spacecraft are operating but i guess we'll get to uh, what's happened to sentinel 1b normally we'd have a pair of spacecraft which would allow us to to ensure a revisit time anywhere on the planet within six days um, over europe we do considerably better than that um, but of course europe is our focus um, where we do uh, normally close to every day for most parts of Europe uh, in terms of visiting. And we produce a lot of data. I mean, for a SAR mission, it's it's critical talking about how many minutes per orbit. Our orbit's 100 minutes, and, and we can operate outside of Eclipse for 35 minutes. We can, we can take this interferometric wide swath data with our SAR, which is pretty much world beating at the moment for, for a SAR mission. Uh, so we're quite pleased with that. As for what SAR can be used for, uh, the list is is almost endless. I mean, the key thing is with, with SAR, with radar vision, we can see day and night and through clouds, which means that we're not subject to any of those issues. Uh, that makes us very useful for disaster response. Uh, and that's one of our big areas. We, we're frequently activated to respond to disasters in all parts of the world, usually as part of the Copernicus emergency management service or the disasters charter um, but we frequently respond to requests like that so earthquakes flooding uh, tropical storms volcanoes there are sort of bread and butter targets but we also intend to try and cover the whole world because that's part of the thing with Copernicus is we want to put the data out there um, such that people can come up with innovative uses for it and, and they definitely do makes sense so what are your experiences with sentinel one because what I'm curious about is also you have, or at least, you know, we'll get to Sentinel-1B in a bit, but you we did have a pair of, you know, spacecrafts or the, the satellites. So how different it is compared to another mission which has only one? Are there, you know, is there more work for you because you have two and you kind of have to manage two of them as opposed to just one one satellite? I mean, it's it's definitely it's less work than operating two different spacecraft but definitely more work than operating a single single one mm -hmm. um yeah it's very interesting having two spacecraft to operate because yeah as on 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 the one hand they are very similar so you can learn from one and apply lessons from one to the other you can use techniques you've learned on one and apply it to the other on the other hand you treat them as, as the same at your peril i mean they were launched uh, two years apart um, they have some minor detailed hardware differences and things like that so they are both their own spacecraft and uh, that can make it difficult because you've got to somehow manage that balance between them being the same but different now, of course, two well, spacecraft is far from a mega constellation or something like that. So <laughs> unfortunately, you also you can't really get statistics. A mega constellation, if you've got thousands of spacecraft, maybe you can start getting statistics. But we have to remember that two is two is not very many data points. Yeah, not much. And I was going to go back to the metaphor that you're talking about or the example of how you develop relationship with a spacecraft is kind of a baby if it's one. Now, this seems like it's like twins. Almost, oh yes, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're same. They have their same kind of. They have different personalities, but then you know they're kind of the same. So oh, they do. Yeah, yeah. What what one A is one A is the old experienced workhorse, and one B is the uh, the new upstart and uh, the one that tries to look cool. Uh, a lot of the, the things we found, we found some minor issues on one A, and so they all came out fixed on one B. So definitely, when I think of their personalities, I've got one B as the. The cool new kid on the block that didn't have to suffer through learning any of the uh, experience that 1A had to learn. Wow, okay. 
Sounds good. Um, all right, so let's move to 1B and give an overview of what happened, you know, on that day and maybe talk about your experience. Yeah, no, exactly. So, um, yes, 1B has unfortunately been out of action since the 23rd of December, the night of the 23rd of December. Uh, actually, it was the night of the 22nd into the 23rd, and that's when things started to go wrong on 1B, unfortunately. Uh, what we got was uh, through the night, when we don't actually have passes, we, we operate what we call lights out overnight. So we do take science data and we can downlink housekeeping, but we don't command the spacecraft overnight. Um, and when we got there, when we looked in the morning, we saw these strange events that we'd not seen, complaining about low voltage on uh, a couple of the units on the, the SAR, uh, the, the radar. Uh, particularly related to the the electronics box that controls the SAR, so that the control electronics were complaining that this regulated 28 volt bus, so they have a a power supply of 28 volts that that powers all of the computers for the SAR, uh, and that was complaining of low voltage, which was unusual. We hadn't seen it before, uh, but then shortly afterwards, uh, on that morning of the 23rd of December, um, we saw the SAR power off. Uh, which is not entirely unusual. SARS are, especially the ones on Sentinel-1, are big, complicated beasts. And we do know that uh, sometimes it falls over and stops working. And initially, that's sort of what we assumed was happening. Uh, so we responded as we would normally respond to that and tried to restart it. And uh, that was the point where we began to realize that something much more serious had happened. Uh, for a start, we noticed that... Um, one unit that even when it falls over shouldn't be off. Uh, it, its main control electronics had stopped, had, had turned off as well, which was unusual. Uh, and then, of course, when we tried to turn it back on again, <clears throat> it didn't switch on. And that's when we realized that we had a very serious anomaly indeed, because uh, from an operator's point of view, Loss of contact is about the scariest thing you can have because then you can't even talk to your spacecraft. But next scariest is a power supply failure. And that's ultimately what's happened on Sentinel-1B. Um, we now know that the problem is in the this 28-volt power regulator. So it takes the power from the, the bus, the power bus, which is connected to the batteries and the solar arrays on the spacecraft, and transforms that into a stable 28-volt DC supply for the, the SAR computers. And that power supply is not working. Uh, neither the main or the redundant, so the prime and redundant power supplies are both gone, uh, which is very unusual. Um, I mean, the hope initially was that we just lost the prime supply, um, but then the redundant supply wasn't working as well. Uh, then we realized that it would be extremely challenging to restart the instrument, and we've done a lot of troubleshooting since. Um, hours and hours of, of meetings and discussions and had wonderful support from industry colleagues that built this part of the SAR, from colleagues in the technical parts of ESA that are experts in electronics and stuff, because uh, this goes well beyond my knowledge and, and any of our team's knowledge. Um, and lots of different people have worked together um, to try and look at what the problem could have been at the moment. It it seems to be the most likely cause is possibly a, a what they call a leaking capacitor in this power supply, uh, a slow failure that eventually broke it. Um, 
it's the most likely of a bunch of unlikely scenarios though but that is always going to be the case in a in a catastrophic failure in space we don't design our spacecraft to be able to have catastrophic failures so when something happens it's always going to be something that you've never considered and, and this seems to be the case here uh, which means it's hard to say there's one definite smoking gun uh, but that's what we've settled on as being the most plausible way to explain what we saw uh, since then we've tried all sorts of things to reactivate it I mean, trying to turn it on, we've tried the limited amount of things we can do. Most of our operations tricks, fancy software using different modes and stuff, none of that works if you can't even turn it on. So uh, a lot of the things we've been trying are things like heating it up, cooling it down, um, even going into quite some depth, changing uh, how we work at the lowest level of the software uh, to try and increase the speed at which we can command these, these regulators to turn on. Um, effectively going way beyond what the spacecraft was designed to do and in fact that gave us some success we saw some glimmers of life from the regulator but sadly far below what you would need to restart the SAR so unfortunately that's um, that's where we're at with one bravo at the moment is that it's uh, it's not looking good there are still some efforts ongoing um, industry are building a breadboard copy of this power supply that's failed um, in Italy and they're going to experiment with that and see if we can learn some lessons from that uh, but at the moment it's looking extremely unlikely that I mean it would be a, a miracle really if we were to be able to get the spacecraft back unfortunately I say the spacecraft the payload the spacecraft is working mm -hmm. perfectly which is almost more frustrating that we have a beautiful yeah. functioning spacecraft platform but we can't do what it was designed for yeah no 100% um, but yeah the good news is we have um, 1C and 1D coming up, 1C pretty pretty shortly, so, you know, that's... Yeah, so uh, 1C, we're hoping to be um, end of April is our target launch. Of course, uh, the big unknown for that is what happens with Vega C, which is our, our launcher. So the first Vega C flight will be, uh, it's currently scheduled for the 7th of July. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're all crossing everything we've got that that flight goes well, uh, because if the Vega C flights go well, then then I hope we can be on target for that launch date. Uh, we've got a window, though, that extends until sort of June next year. But hopefully the first half of next year, we should have one C up, which uh, will be nice, a nice fresh Sentinel-1 in orbit, um, which also is a slight upgrade on, on the A and B models. Okay, a few units changed, but the main thing is that we've got an extra payload that we don't have. Uh, so we have a, a ship detection payload on one C um, that'll be able to pick up uh, the AIS beacons from from ships in the beam of the radar so we can correlate uh, ships that we see in the radar data um, with their transmitted positions. Uh, oh, that sounds uh, that sounds great actually. Uh, yeah, and the impact is also going to be minimal so hopefully everything goes well with um, Vega C. Yeah, cool. fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. I want to move on to the last topic. Um, don't know how much we can talk about it uh, in the next few minutes, but I want to address this as well uh, because this is also your know, area, uh, right? Mm. The space traffic management and space situational awareness, and sure. it's a lot going on. It's almost become its own market. You know, you <laughs> wouldn't have at least I wouldn't have thought um, when I got into the industry about six years ago. Thought this was mm. like a research domain, <laughs> but then now there are so many commercial companies and you know market reports out on this domain. So I'm like, oh, it's a commercial. Yeah, market yeah. Here. No, absolutely it is. I mean, space debris is 
dominates your life if you operate anything in low Earth orbit these days. In fact, uh, as we're recording this, um, I've got a collision avoidance. Uh, well, we actually aren't going to fly the collision avoidance. We've got a conjunction alert for this evening uh, at around nine o'clock Zulu. Um, we're not going to move for this one. Uh, turns out that the object's too uncertain, but that leads us right into space situational awareness and, and our tracking. This is a, a small piece of uh, piece of junk from the, the Fengyong 1C incident, which was a, a Chinese anti-satellite weapons test. Um, and the debris is still up there. Uh, and quite a common one that, that we come across in Sentinel-1 when we have these alerts. Uh, but in fact, this fragment was, was last tracked quite some time ago. And uh, the frequency that we track objects is, first of all, very important because uh, knowing where something is in space is critical if you want to get out the way of it. And that's one of the biggest problems with uh, with conjunction of maneuvers and things like that when we want to avoid space debris is knowing where something is. And we rely on tracking radars uh, at the moment from the US Space Force. Um, we rely on their space situational awareness um, radars and systems that they use to track space debris. But as you say, um, it's a big growth area and that is truly valuable information to a spacecraft operator because for all the missions up there that can report their location there's far more debris that can't report its location and we need to be able to detect that and if <clears throat> this object tonight i might not have even been alerted had i had it been tracked a day or two ago but because there's so many objects and at the moment so little tracking capability it was last tracked almost a week ago and so you have to propagate its position out from there and that means uncertainties which means that you don't really know where it is or what you're avoiding which is difficult then you get into space traffic management which is the 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 next thing from there which is like air traffic control that you uh, you get to the point where we can more intelligently manage where we are in space and manage our interactions with other operators and with debris and everything else but uh, this is still despite the fact that it's a critical part of your work in in any low earth orbit mission it's still very much a bit of a frontier industry um learning how we have to manage that and, and work with that yeah that's the thing right these this low Earth orbit economy, whether it's in Earth observation or whatever, telecommunications wouldn't exist if uh, we were not able to operate um, safely and efficiently um, in the future. So it's I hope that, you know, a lot more things happen, uh, improve, uh, we're able to track things better, we're able to, you know, move things out of the way. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about space debris removal. I mean, that's the big that's a big place that they're going now or that we, we want to go now. We're, we've got a mission called Clear Space One from ESA. Uh, active debris removal and orbit servicing is is one big solution to the debris problem because we're in a diverging problem at the moment. The, some people call it uh, Kessler syndrome, this runaway effect that one fragment hits another fragment that or another object, that object explodes, creates thousands more fragments that all go off and hit something else. Happens much more slowly and in the movies, like in Gravity, but uh, it still happens. And even if we're all good consumers of space today, uh, we still need to do something more active and go up there. And we're going to start testing the technology to, to go up there and grab bits and bring them down. Uh, we need to do that to, to stabilize the space environment so that LEO is usable for a long time. Of course, then with mega constellations, you've also got to look at what change that has on the modeling. Even if the mega constellation operators are very well behaved and they do all everything by the book and follow all the space debris guidelines, you can't avoid the fact that you're still talking about doubling, tripling, quadrupling the population of all orbits, all objects in orbit. Um, and that has an impact. All of our modeling 
um, needs to be updated to deal with that and it could have a huge impact so it's definitely something that's going to occupy us for for quite some time to come because it's already a challenging environment to fly in and will only mm -hmm. become more so and that's also assuming people do behave well and follow the guidelines which sadly is is worldwide not not always the case and it's not the case and you know it's, we just need to look at the at the history of humanity to understand how things are going to go there uh but i want to uh yeah yeah i want to ask you about mega constellations um probably you know the only one that's out there that is a mega constellation today that is starlink so what are your thoughts on mega constellation because obviously there is the you know the complaints about uh the astronomy the astronomy and you know the complaints coming in from astronomers but then there's also a you know ss um STM, SSA angle to it about what it's going to do to spacecraft operations. Some people are pragmatic and saying this is kind of what it is. It is the future, so we need to be prepared for it, which is a pragmatic view. Some are a bit more, um, you know, pessimistic. Why do we need to do that, right? Like, why do we need to launch or why do we need to quadruple the population of satellites in orbit? So where do you stand? In yeah, exactly. And I think... Um... Yeah, there's a certain amount of, of buzz around mega constellations because it's the new big thing. So I think everyone's right to a certain extent, just uh, you need to come up with a, a consensus view of, of everyone's opinion. The people that say, why do we do it? We shouldn't be launching thousands when we can do it with with less. That's a perfectly valid view. If we can do it with less, we shouldn't just do it because we can launch mega constellations. But it's true, the, the services and the, the opportunities that they offer are very tempting and it would be a shame to <clears throat> to hold us back from those opportunities but we need to look at a way to do it safely because yes there are a few thousand operating spacecraft today if you launch a mega constellation of tens of thousands of spacecraft um, you're massively increasing the amount of objects in orbit and you've got to replenish that constellation constantly spacecraft will fail will come down will go up and so it's a lot more traffic in space. So we do need to come up with an agreement as some kind of traffic management system that allows us to do this safely. We need to look at our models and, and model mega constellations as part of the environment evolution in low Earth orbit. Um, but critically, it needs transparency and, and working together um, from the mega constellation operators as much as everybody else. It needs some acceptance and some compromise from, from us legacy operators and things like that and an acceptance as you say pragmatically that that this is coming um yes it's coming and and we should welcome anyone that's trying to to push the boundaries of space exploration and space industry um but we should also be aware that we've got a very precious resource in in the low earth orbit space uh, and that we should treat that resource uh, with the respect we do well actually i say with the respect we we treat resources on earth i don't think we treat our resources on earth always with the greatest of respect but but that doesn't mean we should repeat the same mistakes in space so um i think a dialogue with mega constellation operators especially on space traffic management is is key ultimately the 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 end goal should be legislation, some form of agreement, some something binding that the whole world would work towards. But that is frustratingly far away, um, mm -hmm. especially given the global nature that that agreement would have to have. And especially with the fact that there's a lot of commercial confidences and things with with mega constellations. And this is something that that we see relatively often. Luckily, as a space agency, 
they'll often trust us with NDAs to to keep their commercial confidence safe. But but still, you've got your business interests, and that can often just as it does on Earth, directly conflict with your environmental responsibilities and things like that. And yeah. um, we need to find some way to to get over that and to make sure that that you can do both. I'm sure it's possible, um, probably with cleverer people than me, but uh, luckily the, those people exist. Uh, it's just a case of, of the will and of people sitting down together and, and doing it. Yeah, no, 100%. And as they always say, it's um, it's just about launching stuff with purpose, you know, just because access to space is becoming easier. So mean that we need to launch whatever we can um, in any kind of domain. Earth observation is where I focus most of my work in. And so coming up to a few wrap up questions, um, mm -hmm. we talked about, you know, what's going on with respect to space debris. And usually I ask uh, people on my podcast, uh, not pessimistically, but, you know, just to be realistic, uh, what worries them about the state of the space industry in general? Is there anything that worries you? Different people give different answers, but then, you know, we talked about space debris, um, but then uh, is there anything else? Yeah, that lack of cooperation worries me. I mean, maybe that's a, a, a classic answer from someone that works for a space agency, but for an agency that's that's all about cooperation and openness, the, the, the rise of new space and commercialization means a lot more competitiveness and and less transparency in many ways because of commercial confidence. So I don't think it's a bad thing, don't get me wrong. I mean, new space and, and the things that it's providing are absolutely fantastic. But I I hope we don't lose that spirit that space has always had of of openness and transparency and cooperation. And and to their credit, many of the new space companies keep that spirit fully alive. So uh, I, I wouldn't say there's any particular bad eggs, but it does concern me when we move to that that model, when we talk about commercialization, that some of the the spirit of of space exploration disappears in in in, in a, the chase for money and things like that. Yeah, no, it's true. What is your favorite kind of spacecraft or what's your dream spacecraft to be operating and why is it a an earth observation mission oh well you see i'm I'm going to betray earth observation here and say that one of these uh active debris removal missions would be really exciting to operate uh so one of these uh we've never launched one before as i say europe's trying to lead the way on that but a mission that that flies up grabs a piece of space debris and and deorbits it is I mean, in operations terms, still pretty much sci-fi. We're going to make it fact very soon. Um, but it involves all sorts of different uh, things from orbit rendezvous. You've got to have visual navigation on board, docking to a, an object that's what we call uncooperative, potentially, so one that wasn't built for docking to, uh, and then having to maneuver a stack um, into a disposal orbit and potentially even a controlled re-entry. Uh, there's a whole load of really exciting operational challenges there. So not that I would betray my beloved Earth observation missions, but if someone <laughs> gave me the chance to fly one for a few weeks, I, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> yeah, it does sound exciting, to be honest, in terms of, when I think about it from an operation standpoint, yeah, it does have a lot of exciting milestones in it. All right, cool. Uh, last question. Where can people go to learn more about everything that we have discussed on this podcast, especially with respect to spacecraft operations? Because it's a topic, again, that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, you know, you talked about gravity. I think that was kind of the only mainstream thing people knew, but that was more related to space debris. But then any resources, where, where can people go to learn more? 
Okay, the ESA website's the classic one, and we do. There's there's an operations section on there. That's that's ESA.int. Um, but I would say uh, follow ESA operations Twitter at ESA operations um, is the the best place to go. Uh, at least for our operations from from the European Space Agency, uh, I tweet on there sometimes, and my fantastic colleagues tweet a lot more on there. Uh, and you can really, if you follow that, you'll see the the sort of breadth of activities that that we do, and we try and uh, keep it a bit more of a techie. Um, Twitter account, so uh, operations can get a bit techy, but there's a lot of people out there that like to see a few more of the behind the curtain sort of view of what it's like to operate Europe spacecraft, and uh, I would say that that's a really good place to start to see what we get up to from day to day. All right, brilliant. Um, that's it. I think that we've gone to the end of the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for being on the podcast, Dominic. It was fun. Thank you ever so much for having me. No, it's uh, absolutely fantastic. Hey, this is Arvind again. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the TerraWatch Space Podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, feel free to sign up for my newsletter, TerraWatch on Substack. That is terrawatch.substack.com, where I attempt to decode the recent developments in space tech and its impact on Earth. Thanks again, and hope to see you for the next episode.